Great. Well, thank you, everybody, for coming. Um, today I was asked to talk about hyperoxia, uh, too much of a good thing. Uh, and our objectives I was asked to talk about by ASAP was to describe the potential mechanisms for increased mortality in patients with observed hyperoxia, describe nitrogen washout and absorption atelectasis, and discuss kind of maybe are there any oxygen titration strategies for patients with uh, cardiac arrest and traumatic brain injury. And I have no disclosures. And so this is how you end your uh, shift in the emergency department. Um, a 60-year-old gentleman comes in V-fib with arrest, and you get ROSC in the department. So life is pretty good. You see no ST elevations in the EKG, just some nonspecific findings. Your cardiologists aren't that excited. You do point-of-care uh, ultrasound, and you see an EFS depressed of 35% with no effusion, and you have him on an epi drip to get a blood pressure, and you have him on the ventilator, and you're basically high-fiving yourself. You somehow got this done within an hour of the ending of your shift. So you decide to give reports to the intensivists, so you don't have to sign out to anybody. He says to you, literally, nice job. Can you turn down the FiO2? And you're like, seriously, really? I mean, that's really the only thing you can say to me, <laughs> really? Now, I have to admit, when I was preparing for this talk, I sort of knew the oxygen was bad. And I work in the ICU along with the emergency department. And you know, the reality is, when you just Google search or you do any kind of beginning uh, search in general with PubMed, this is what you get. You get, it's good or it's bad, and you have no idea what kind of makes sense ahead to head or tails of what to do with that. And so I think it might be good to take a step back and think about what auction is for, because just like many other things in life, there, you can definitely have too much of a good thing. So, our, so why do we need oxygen? Oxygen is the eighth element on the periodic table, comprised of 16 uh, electrons bound together, discovered by Joseph Priestley in the 1700s. Um, and we know it does a lot of different things, right? It provides us cellular respiration because we're aerobic beings, all of us, and in the, as a side effect, you make a lot of water. Um, but then what about these free radical things? Um, the toxin metabolites for oxygen and cellular respiration in the mitochondria is actually free radicals. And I have to admit, I didn't really remember that from medical school um, until I had to give this talk and had to look up all of these different mechanisms for how is it we get these free radicals. And this is kind of where whole foods, uh, um, uh, antioxidant stuff meets kind of biology and where it kind of becomes relevant. Because at the end of the day, these free radicals, otherwise known as reactive oxygen species, are actually the way that we cause damage in our own cells to our cells or DNA and actually cause apoptosis or necrosis. And actually, this is what we're combating all the time in terms of reperfusion injury and trying to get people through things. So I'll argue with you that oxygen really should be thought of as a drug, a drug with a very narrow therapeutic index, just like phenytoin, just like theophylline, just like lithium, digoxin, lots of different drugs we worry this needs a very narrow margin to have a really great effect. And so subtherapeutic oxygen is really easy to see, right? So when you don't have enough oxygen, you're cyanotic, you're confused, you're not breathing very well. And toxic is actually sometimes sort of easy to see, maybe, maybe not, things like tracheobronchitis or lung inflammation. I don't know if you see inside your patient's bodies, but you can't normally see this type of thing. Confusion, seizures, lipid peroxidation of your brain cells. You can't really see any of these things. So that's actually really hard to see even for the toxic side. I mean, all of our other drug levels, you have other more impressive cardiac problems or other levels you can get. You can't really get uh, too, uh, too much with the oxygen side of things. So we need a very fine balance to protect against reactive oxygen species. So I just want to take a step back and remind everyone that um, on the left, we have air. And on the right side, we have 100% FiO2. So atmospherically, we're provided 150 millimeters of mercury of regular air FiO2. And then if you're providing 100% non-rebreather, you're giving 700 
right? You're giving 713. And by the time you hit to the alveoli, it's down. By the time you're down to the arteries and your capillaries and your lungs, you're down to 98. And on the venous side, you're down to 39. And then who the heck knows where your, where your cells are? We actually don't know that. On this side, when you provide 100% oxygen, you're still providing 600 when you're in the alveoli to allow that concentration gradient and just flows down the concentration gradient into your capillary blood. But then on the venous side, you still only get 48, right? And so the reality is, whether you're providing air or you're providing oxygen, you're not necessarily getting a lot of bang for your buck on the way deep in the venous tissue side. We actually have no idea what that means on the tissue side of things. And so some things to kind of also remind ourselves, too, is the fact that a brief time of hypoxia followed by normoxia causes all of these reactive oxygen species to be formed. So even just transient dips in hypoxia and then getting back to normal actually is pretty injurious uh, in general. And actually also at the same time stimulates growth factors and uh, makes new things form in your body. So the question then becomes, you know, where does bio 101 meet where things are in, our, in the emergency department? So some things to know, the hyperoxia actually causes decreased cardiac output it increases vasoconstriction in both the heart and the brain, and also obviously long-term can cause some uh, lung injury as well. So let's look at some data in terms of whether we really should kind of get rid of this whole hypoxia thing. So we're gonna go through a whole bunch of different disease states that you see in the emergency department and kind of begin the treatment for, for lots of patients. So the traumatic brain injury data, a retrospective review of approximately 1,500 patients showed that 43% had uh, hyperoxia, in which they defined as greater than 200. And in those patients, 47% of them actually died. And so they actually did a lot worse. So their argument, their conclusion was, uh, this is from uh, shock trauma, um, was the hyperoxia in the first 24 hours, if you had any gas that had that, was associated with worse outcomes and higher mortality. And for those aficionados in the room with resuscitation research, because I know there's a bunch of emergency medicine and, you know, there's a lot of debate in terms of is it one gas, is it the cumulative dose, is it sequential dosing. But either way, I'm going to show you over the next multiple slides that it doesn't really matter how you slice that pie, there's an association that something's not right. So other TBI data uh, actually shows a, a survival curve difference, which is pretty impressive. So the Project Impact Database is a retrospective cohort of about 1,700 people um, with traumatic brain injury, over 61 hospitals over five years, all in the ICU. This is an ICU uh, database, and they had um, some association with the fact that um, they actually didn't survive, right? So this survival curve is much worse than people who just had normoxia when they, no matter how you measured um, normoxia versus hyperoxia. And so what's also interesting, too, for those of you who are at level one trauma centers and actually have neurocritical care or neurointensive care units, some of the worst of the worst actually get, like, devices into their brain to measure their cerebral spinal fluid. What they're looking for is anything they can do to help brain tissue oxygenization. And let me just tell you, being a neurointensivist myself, too, I don't think the data is necessarily out there. But some things that they measure are things like glutamate, which is a uh, neurotransmitter in the brain that's associated with too much excitation and potentially causes brain damage, and lactate. So those are the types of things they measure from these invasive things in the head. And so this group um, just recently published in the past year that they took 36 patients over four days and got over a 1,000 samples of their cerebral spinal fluid. And they looked in control for brain-related things. So you obviously have a worse ICP, you have a worse um, CT scan, you're going to do worse. They control for all that. They looked at physiologic systemic factors, look at your Apache score, look at your hypotension, look at your ABGs, you know, were you ventilated well, did you get good care? They control for all that. And despite all of that, uh, they all had increased glutamate. 
And so in their charts, they, they divided into quartiles. So they looked at people who had like FIL2 of 40s versus 40 to 60 versus 60 to 80 versus greater than 80. And no matter how you looked at whether their brain oxygen was okay or not okay, because we know that if you measure the brain O2, it's kind of low, that's really bad for you. But we also have people who have brain O2s who are okay, as far as we know is okay, and they also did badly, right? So these all people had increased glutamate, which are all very bad neurotransmitters. So I'd argue in traumatic brain injury, we definitely know that too much oxygen may be a very dangerous thing, probably because of the cerebral vasoconstriction that's well known already. Cardiac arrest. So cardiac arrest, I think for most of us, we know a lot of this data, right? That we know that more oxygen is not necessarily the best thing. And to the point where now there's meta-analysis upon meta-analysis upon odds ratio upon to the point where it favors normoxia. And so Kilgannon was one of the first many years ago who actually showed a dose-dependent relationship. And multiple other retrospective groups have actually shown that the more oxygen you're exposed to, whether it be single dose, multiple dose, within the first hour, within your whole database, there's a problem. And so they're just confirming, finally, for at least for cardiac arrest, we've known in animals for a while. So in animals, for those of you who are already doing resuscitation research, already know that in the first 60 minutes for getting ROSC, if you give them 100% oxygen, that's not a good thing. You actually have worse neuronal damage. You can see that in all of these animals. So people said, well, it's not just about the oxygen. It's also about your carbon dioxide. So it, you, know, you don't live in a silo of ventilation and oxygenation. So you're right. So they actually then, this group, took a large a cohort of people and actually looked at whether their entire gas looked all right. So they looked at the CO2 and they looked at the O2. So it kind of ups the ante, right? So this is all hypocapnic and this is all hypercapnic, hypooxia, hyperoxia. So basically the conclusion is that you need to be normal. If you're well ventilated perfectly and you're well oxygenated perfectly, not too much, not too little on either side, um, actually showed worse outcomes. So it's interesting that this U-shaped curve, the two extremes are very bad. Now we already knew about the hypoxic part. That part wasn't so hard to figure out. It's more just now the association that when you take all factors combined, there's still an association that it's a problem that we need to try to achieve just the perfect looking gas. And so the other question then became, well, when do you titrate? I mean, ROSC doesn't occur always in my department. ROSC occurs out in the field, hopefully, um, for them to be survivable. So the Australians did a trial called the Hot or Not trial. So they actually, unfortunately, had to terminate the study early. What they did was they had the medics have the authority that they start turning down the FiO2. Oops, sorry. Start turning down the FiO2. And they had to terminate because they had too many hypoxic episodes. And there was too much harm being caused. So I'll argue that I don't know, just like some hypothermia um, research that's been done, I don't know that you have to do everything out in the field. Some things can be done in the emergency department. So when they come to you, one of your first jobs is to turn down that oxygen. So that's the uh, hot or not trial in Australia. In ischemic strokes, uh, the same project impact, the same database that I already mentioned, also took a uh, look at all of their uh, ischemic strokes. And mortality was associated with those with hyperoxia. So we also know that association exists um, for ischemic stroke. Myocardial infarction. So for MI, the Cochrane Review probably summarizes the best when they basically said, you know, over like two decades, you only had 430 people in four randomized control trials, and you're telling me 17 deaths is enough to change my practice? I think all of us were like, I don't think so, which is why Mona still existed, right? Mona still, was still taught at least to medical students up until very recently. So the Australians said, you know, we should probably study this. 
So Australians did the AVOID trial, and it just recently got published, I think, last year. So in Australia, they took nine hospitals, and pre-hospitals, they were allowed to give eight liters of oxygen or um, four liters uh, per minute or air, right? So they had 200 people in each arm, and they said, you know, I need to make some kind of biologically plausible argument for why air versus oxygen is something you should do for an acute MI. And so they said, we should at least first start to see if your troponin makes a difference or your, or your infarct size makes a difference, and that's what their primary endpoint was. So they actually uh, very, you know, very uh, boldly said that we are not powered for clinical outcomes. We're just going to start with the fact that can we even make a logical argument that this is actually a real thing? And they did. And so they actually showed that people who got air actually had decreased injury, meaning decreased troponins, and infarct size compared to those who got oxygen. And so the question is, it's still to be determined, right? So um, um, uh, now I think another Scottish uh, trial, uh, sorry, Swedish study, uh, the Detox 2 study, is going to enroll 6,000 people, and the enrollment is already ongoing for a huge national database for looking to see whether air versus oxygen acute MI. So it's still to be determined. But I think for many of us already, we're starting to start down, turning down the nasal cannula to some degree. The hard thing is kind of like old habits die hard. Usually in triage, people get oxygen placed onto them. Perioperatively, there's been a ton of data that I'm not going to really go over, but trial after trial of confusing trial that basically at the end of the day that we're not really sure in perioperative management is how long and how much oxygen should we give. Because there was an argument at least uh, for some of the studies, half the studies, was the fact that increased oxygen would allow some decrease in surgical soft tissue infections later. So the ANCs just don't know, what, don't know what to do about this. So then some people started to say, well, maybe um, there's something called permissive hypothesis Hypoxemia, right? We have permissive hypercapnia that's okay for ARDS patients to not really ventilate them well. Maybe it's okay that we don't give people so much oxygen, right? Because we know that basically somewhere in this sweet spot, this target zone is where we want to make everyone, our narrow therapeutic index for our particular drug oxygen. And then we know this is bad, hypoxia is bad, hyperoxia is bad. But the bad thing is they also don't take into account like what happens if you've already been exposed to hyper, and hypoxic situations. So for those of you who do reperfusion science um, and had to uh, deal with this kind of uh, stuff in terms of a remote ischemic preconditioning, you know, if you get exposed to some degree of hypoxia, your cells change. They make some degree of these reactive oxygen species and they start to manipulate themselves, they protect themselves to the point where as soon as you get back to normal oxygen, you're actually already in a danger zone of damage. So they asked me to talk about physiology and kind of giving a mechanism for what to do with this oxygen. I have to admit, we don't know when or who or what else. We really don't have great answers. The only thing we can really say at this point now is that we know that there is a mitochondria and we know that we use glucose and we use the Krebs cycle uh, to give uh, oxygen um, and energy to our cells, make ATP. But at the same time, we're creating simultaneously these reactive oxygen species. And those species are things like peroxide, hydroxyl anion, superoxide anion. These things are actually quite, uh, quite dangerous. And what's even worse about all of this is that they beget more of each other. And some things to kind of remind ourselves, too, um, is also the fact that um, your carbon dioxide and oxygen transport are tightly linked. So the answer for hypoxemia may also still rely to some degree on what happens with carbon dioxide because the two of them together actually share the same common molecule to some degree in terms of the transport, right? So you bring with this particular uh, molecule the oxygen to your tissues and then you also take away some of the carbon dioxide so that you can exhale these things. And the dark side of oxygen is really the reperfusion injury. And so the bigger problems, all of these little guys who are made simultaneously um, at the same time, and only 5% of the oxygen is metabolized this way, but 5% of all these damaging molecules is a big problem.
And so I thought this was a really nice uh, quote from one of the uh, articles, is the risk that we have when we get oxygen and that we consume oxygen, that we have to adapt to the simultaneous creation of bad things inside our body, uh, aka reactive oxygen species or free radicals. So, you know, people ask, you know, well, maybe I can tell. Maybe I can see whether or not my patient's particularly toxic. But these are really nonspecific findings, right? I mean, so these are not like something I say, like, oh, yeah, I can definitely, this is a constellation. I can make some kind of scoring tool and figure out there's a, there's a problem. So I don't know if there's any history buffs here, but uh, so Bert, uh, Paul Bert was a French physiology professor who saw in the 1800s that if he stuck animals in 100% FiO2, eventually they would seize and die. So that's Paul Burt. For the people who dive and do dive medicine uh, and are aficionados that way, um, you'll recognize uh, Lorraine Smith, who was a Scottish pathologist, who saw that if you gave too much oxygen, which is why you titrate the oxygen in your tanks, um, too much oxygen, 70, over 75% uh, oxygen, when they breathe it in, actually caused all the animals to have a diffuse lung injury and die. And then this gentleman down here is Haldane, right? So Haldane was a, a, a British gentleman who was in the Royal Navy who basically decided to take himself and his buddies down diving and try to figure out how much oxygen and at what pressures before they would start to seize. So they thought it was a fun experiment. He also then created uh, nitrox, which is the nitrogen and oxygen mix that you have to breathe in order to um, prevent the bends. And then after he invented it, eventually kind of caught on and obviously more people use it. So that kind of leads me into, well, what is air? Like, what is actually in air? And so most of you also already know that, well, it's 21% oxygen, silly. Um, so at the end of the day, if there's only 21% oxygen, what's the rest of it? The rest of it is all nitrogen, right? So it's very little of all these other 1% of other things, uh, but it's all mostly nitrogen. And so what is the point of that? So they asked to talk about uh, absorption atelectasis primarily because it actually may be one of the mechanisms for why you may have problems. If you give too much oxygen, a lot of times later on, you're also stuck cleaning up the mess after yourself, right? And how that works is if these little gray dots are oxygen and these little blue dots are nitrogen, in normal air, you actually have a great admixture of the two. So as you inhale in all the oxygen down your distal alveoli, they'll go into your capillary stream, they'll kind of go into your bloodstream, they'll go do their magical thing, and what you're left behind with is a whole bunch of nitrogen to kind of scaffold and hold up your alveoli so nothing deflates, so your balloon doesn't deflate. Now, the problem is if you give 100% FaO2, you're giving basically no nitrogen and all oxygen. And so when all these oxygen molecules go into your bloodstream, you're left with nothing, and it crumples. And it kind of folds over like a wrinkly balloon. And so then the problem is that actually causes a lot of damage. Um, for those of you who actually um, played with balloons with your kids, blowing up uh, open and close a balloon is not necessarily the best thing to do for it because it actually it lacks structural integrity and it pops, right? Um, and this actually may be a mechanism, and it also causes more work to reinflate. So I'll argue that in the emergency department, what we're looking to do is to try to find the sweet spot and begin that journey early. So your goals in the department should be to keep normal capnia, meaning a PCO2 is on a gas, anywhere from 35 to 45. So for those of you who are in my uh, capnography talk just before this, you have a non-invasive way of measuring it if you don't want to get a gas, because I don't always feel like getting a gas either. Um, and then the other thing is normoxia. And so I will also question whether 60 to 300 really is appropriate. We don't know the cutoff for normoxia, whether it be 100, 200, or 300. Different resuscitation studies have showed different injury patterns uh, with different numbers, so some degree of normal oxygen, but certainly not uh, 350, 400 higher numbers. Uh, and what you do in the department begins the ball rolling. So going back to our case, you know, in terms of when the intensivist told you to uh, can turn down the FiO2. I guess my take-home point are two main things, really, from this talk. And one is, yeah, you actually, unfortunately, have to turn the knob on the ventilator, and you need to turn it down to as low as possible. Um, 
for whatever your convention is for your hospital. Some do 30, some do 40. And the other one is get a gas, actually, which, I'm, which is also very surprising because, in general, we, we tend not to get ABGs uh, in general uh, anymore in the intensive care unit. But there probably is a role at least to kind of make sure you're heading in the right direction and not accidentally giving too much oxygen, especially in the first 60 minutes. So this is where the data in animal stuff actually does show it's the beginning that actually matters. And so what you do in the department actually does make a difference for this particular problem of hyperoxia. It may be kind of like an ivory tower ICU thing is what it feels like, but unfortunately, if, it's, if humans are anything like the other animals they've already studied, there's actually more in the first 60 minutes. Um, so our take-home points is basically oxygen is a drug. You should think about the dose of that drug you're giving. You should titrate it down, and your goal should be some degree of normoxia. And we don't necessarily know fully the mechanism for why that happens. Um, the handouts and the slides will be available on the website, uh, I think, that date. So that's it.